Ladies and gentlemen, if I had the ability to learn something very quickly, like how in the Matrix you can learn how to fly a plane in two seconds, for me it'd be languages. I want to collect languages in the same way I can collect shoes. That'd be great. In other words, Public Enemy's Chuck D. Bring the noise. On the Fifth Home Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. Yeah, I saw I saw Duolingo like it's been trending on Twitter, you know, for a bit. Um, they're now teaching like now you can now have the ability to learn Haitian Creole, and I was like, that'd be cool. But I can't even learn French. <laughs> Yeah, you know I mean, I just, I just, I have, I don't know, man. Like, I have motivations to learn things, right? You know this about me, but there's just some things I feel like require just a bit more of a consistent commitment than, say, uh, taking the camera out every day. You know, what I mean, it's just, it's just, it's a bit, it's a bit different. Um, I feel like, I feel like that five minute learning a day thing. I'm not a fan of that because. I remember, like, um, I remember back in, um, uh, back in, uh, maths, um, especially six form after I was retaking it, I don't know what they expected from me to learn maths better, um, with one hour a week as opposed to five that I used to have in, you know, in the earlier years. You know what I mean? What are you going to do with that? So I feel like if I'm going to learn a language, I kind of just want to immerse in it, but that would mean, you know, complete commitment to it and i just don't have time for that you know what i mean so it's a weird one it's a weird one probably i mean you know what i think i think learning languages like and having and doing it not on an app and doing it from someone like a one-to-one thing i feel like that's the that's the rare thing that technology and doing things online hasn't cracked you know, I feel like you can learn an instrument off like, you know, good old YouTube university. You know what I mean? You you can learn a you can learn an, an instrument just by by watching YouTube videos. I've I've I probably I believe that. I think you can. Right? Or you or you can just do it a good old way and just um, you know, just learn self self teach yourself. Um, you know, same same with um, photography, right? Um self taught YouTube university, take your pick, right? I feel like learning languages. If you have like that one-to-one tutor, like you know, uh, like like most like most people have had before the internet, um, yeah, it just that just seems much more. I don't know, beneficial. You know, what I mean, it just seems like the best way to learn. I think that is that is in in the gen uh, general sense is the best way to actually learn one-to-one um, instead of like reading a book or being in a lecture, having a one-to-one. Um, is the best way to learn for anybody um, on average. So, fun fact for you. Uh, but yeah. Anyway, I just want to learn language, but I just have no. This <laughs> is one. This is one thing. I. This is one thing. More thing on my plate, and I have a lot of things on my plate. So, anyway, with that said, let's jump right in for us before we begin. Email to IG. Just gonna all that. All that. All that in the full show notes. Please go read the articles for yourself and support the writers that make this show possible. And with that said. Let the beat drop and skin tissue. In a week where Wales implement a two-year living wage for 18-year-olds leaving care, I found that so fascinating, I was surprised that wasn't like talked about more. Like they have a UBI in Wales now. Like for two, it may not, you know, may not be for, you know, for everybody and for, you know, forever, but two years for you to turn 18, I think they get 1.6k a year. Um, that's good, man. That's good. Like you, you can, you can do some of that. Uh, yeah, man, I feel that. I hope that experiment goes well. Uh, a black woman in America has been cured of HIV. It's interesting. Uh, Storm Eunice and Franklin tear through the UK. Uh, the Queens tested positive for COVID. And lastly, Russia versus "quote unquote" the West continues. Um, I feel like I, I I changed that so many times. I was just like, you know what? Let me just keep it general. <laughs> Russia versus the West continues. 
if, if you ain't keeping up, you ain't keeping up. You know what I mean? That's it's your problem. It's, it's a you problem. I, I can't help you. Um, <laughs> but we will get into something, you know, very very close to it. Not not quite on the money, but very close to it. You know me. I don't like to, you know, just jump right into the actual uh, thing itself. No, let's do something adjacent to it. But we'll do that in a sec. But firstly, we're talking about um, the loss of a legend um, in so many ways. Um, Mr. Jamal Edwards. Um, who died a couple of days ago at the age of 31. And just thinking about that and the stuff he's done and dying at 31 is crazy to think about. Um, so this is a uh, this is a piece by Miss Nadine White. Nadine White of uh, The Independent. Uh, it's called It's Difficult to Quantify the Enormity of Jamal Edwards' Loss. He showed black people we are enough. And um, yeah, man, it's just... Uh, if you If you don't know... Jamal Edwards. If you don't know SBTV, just get to know, man. Just, just, just do some. Do your Googles. Do YouTube's. Is um, yeah. It's it's that it's that entrepreneurial story that actually that actually tracks and actually feels like something, um, and not just you know Sigma grindset, bro. You know, what I mean, stuff like that. It doesn't it doesn't feel artificial. It feels authentic the way he went about it. Um, so let's jump home. On Sunday, the news of Jamal Edwards' uh, death broke. News that absolutely no one wants to read. A vigil being held in his name, evidence of how much he meant to those who loved and respected him, myself included. I remember seeing Jamal on the cover of Live magazine, a community publication based in Brixton about 15 years ago, and being so inspired by seeing a young black man who, uh, who, looked like me, who looked like me, my brothers and cousins, being deservedly lauded. As a bereaved and misunderstood teenager with a flair for penmanship, seeing that cover and others like it from live inspired me to pursue my goal of writing professionally. And from there, I began began to pursue creative writing through free workshops and involvement in projects around my borough, uh, poetry, spoken word, short plays, and then broadcast journalism, internships, and print journalism. I had no idea our paths would cross later on in life, leaving me struck by not only his his success, by impressed by his down-to-earth disposition and friendly nature. The 31-year-old pioneer gained fame after setting up SB.TV, cutting-edge YouTube music channel, in 2006, and is credited with helping to launch a string of UK music acts to stardom, including Ed Sheeran, Dave, Lady Leisha, and Jesse J. But Jamal was much was so much more than an entrepreneur. Uh, there were many thing uh, many strings to his bow. He was noticed by the name of Smokey Bars, a director, best-selling author, creative philanthropist, DJ, producer, role model, a friend, a family member, a brother, and a son. He was more than this, though, too, a cultural phenomenon, a titan of black British music. As one of Britain's first black media moguls, Jamal encompassed true vision and a blueprint for innovation born out of a pure love for community and culture. Having received a camcorder for Christmas at the age of 15, Jamal set about filming local stars in order to showcase their abilities simply because no one else was doing it. From there, he went on to build an empire that helped launch many music careers, realise many dreams, and put enough food on tables. <laughs> I love ladies uh, around sometimes. Like, just, just occasionally just throws in a little bit of, a little bit of, you know, just a little bit of uh, informal talk there. I love it. Enough food on tables, uh, especially that of young British men disenfranchised families at the fringe of society who are often quickly written off as a quote-unquote less than by suits uh, navigating uh, the upper echelons and running the big record labels. Limitless potential has been unleashed into the world because of his foresight, drive and determination to showcase the best of what he, what we had to offer uh, at a time when mainstream platforms didn't understand or want to know, usually both. Yet the UK grime and hip-hop scene was growing, and with it came an appetite for viewers to access the talent and hear eyes, known and unknown, and spit bars. As far as black music went, mainstream radio stations and TV channels were pretty much exclusively feeding us music from America. The likes of SB.TV and Channel U gave a welcome alternative that reflected our realities and chutzpah. Jamal himself said, quote, I didn't start out thinking I was going to be an entrepreneur. I just provided a service and people have grown with the story. It grew organically and I grew with it, unquote. And in turn, people from my generation grew along with him. One man with one camera and one vision not only championed local stars, but by default broadened the horizons of, uh, of those of us who were fortunate enough to bear witness in real time. People like me 
had a front row seat to all of this. I'm two years younger than Jamal, and we're inspired and were inspired to discover our own purpose and walk in it too. That might have been we're inspired, but there's no apostrophe. So, to many of us, particularly those of his generation, Jamal was a walking blueprint of success. He legitimised Black British media entrepreneurship, uh, which centred which centred Black culture before it was fashionable. Though through his example, Jamal reminded us that we are enough. His work and message reflect unsung, reflected unsung inner city genius and warmth within a wider society that left many of us in the cold against the backdrop of socioeconomic plight and council estates. Quote, you never know what you might create or the change you might inspire, he once said. You didn't have to know the lyrics of the eyes featured on SB.TV to appreciate Jamal's undertaking. I could never MC like some of my peers, but I would sometimes learn one or two new songs, enhance my perspective, and bask in the elevation of the best that they had to offer by following the platform. It was like a virtual lesson on how to shine and be an authentic version of yourself. There were some seismic cultural moments in there too. English Frank's warm-up session comes to mind. I remember my cousins and I gathered around the Big Back desktop computer to watch it. Damn, you, you, you used to remember Big Backs. Oh my gosh. Big Back. Big Back uh, fucking monitors, man. Huge things. Uh, Big Back desktop computer to watch it. Laughing in admiration at his bars, delivery in sheepskin coat. Only to quote his lyrics later, uh, years his lyrics years later during banter. And when finally, and when Jamal really made it, he turned his hand to various philanthropic and social endeavors in order to help those who were most in need through mental health awareness, youth advocacy, and mentorship, to name a few. The man never forgot where he came from, and true to his Windrush roots, uh, Jamal always repped his Saint Vincent and the Grenadines heritage. He knew that you got to understand Caribbean terminology, which means to have a complete grasp of your roots to understand the path that lies ahead. It's difficult to quantify the enormity of Jamal's loss. I can tell you that many people started this week with the heaviest of hearts and are struggling to grapple with the shocking sadness of this news. He was ours. A lot of us, a lot of us feel, and I hope everyone understands that Black communities, in particular, up and down the UK are in a state of collective mourning. However, these feelings pale in comparison to the pain that his mother, Brenda, sister, family and close friends must be experiencing right now. Or a legacy Jamal has left behind, one that will surely outlive us all. And that is a poignant point to leave on, I think, because I I can't... You know, I'm recording on a Wednesday. I'm recording on the Wednesday. It's happened on Sunday. Um... I've had a few days to think about it and I can't, I still can't fathom where we'd be without everything Jamal did, especially early on. Someone could correct me if I'm wrong if they're um, educated in this, but um, as far as my knowledge, the only thing you could do um, in terms of, you know, just general you know, exposure, so to speak, right, is uh, you are either on, you know, Lord the Mike's uh, VHS um, or, you know, different other clashing boiler room type um, stuff, uh, content. I'm sure Lord the Mike's wasn't the only one. Um, and that was a year before SPT.TV anyway. So there you go. There's that. And um, and I'm sure DVDs as well. Um, or Pirate Radio. You know, and I'm, you know, there's, and there's, there's, success stories you know like dizzy rascal before and wiley before uh before all this before you know oh five oh six fun fact i actually learned on twitter you know, around the time of the news <laughs> jamal started sp.tv the same year as youtube started like he was there from day dot he was on youtube day dot like that's crazy to think about like think of the think of the amount of youtube creators right and how many of those are have been on YouTube, you know, since day dot, since day one? I can't think of any. I'm sure there's some that are still go. No, they're still going, right? I'm sure there's plenty of channels we can we can think of from back in the day, right? There's many, especially many videos that we can remember back in the day. I remember like watching, was it RuTube? Um, literally just a TV, a half hour TV show, just showing the most watched. Um, uh, uh, YouTube videos of a certain of a certain ilk. That literally was the whole show premise of YouTube. And yeah, you know, I, I can remember Charlie bit my finger, right? Because you know, obviously I can, because 
I was constantly told that ages ago. But I'm getting I'm getting past the point. Um, I can't think of anybody that has just had this not this such longevity. Um, and again, I can't think of where we'd be, especially when I say we. Uh, I'm talking about you know Black British music, music of Black origin in the UK. I can't think of I can't think of where we'd be where we'd be. Um, I I can't I can't as as a fan of it all. I can't I can't imagine where we would be if SB.TV didn't wasn't there. Um, started so many careers. Well, not started so many careers, but you know, shined the light on so many people, and um is the true OG of that kind of platform. There's plenty of those platforms now, plenty. Even here, you know, Grime Daily, Link Up TV, right? There's, there's, you know, there's plenty here as well. SB.TV was the originator. And, geez, man, it's so, it's so hard to think. It's so hard to, literally hard to quantify um, how much uh, Jamal Edwards changed the game for black British musicians. And not just not just black either, you know, like they're cheering in that. It, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't, they would not be where they're at if it weren't for SB TV. That's that's just um, crazy. And you know, not to just um, harp on the fact that he started SB TV at the age of fifteen for fuck's sake, fifteen, right? And everything else as well, man. That's the 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 the, the philanthropy, the community aspect of his life as well. Um, I think he has his own foundation. That's the shit. That's the shit I feel as well. I'm here for that all day, every day, because community sent communities are so they're, they're so disjointed now. It's so hard to keep a community locally. Um, there's no community centers anymore. Stuff like that. It's just it's just hard to do. You know, you can use a school. You can use a local school, I guess. But you know, that's that's it's not it's not as it's not as Good as not as a twenty four seven community center where like oh, something's always going down, you know something's always happening, something to teach the kids with, something to occupy the kids as well, uh, educate the kids as well. Um, so you know, R.I.P. Jamal Edwards, a tragic loss, of course. Um, but damn, man, <laughs> if he, if he didn't live, uh, if he didn't li- uh, leave a lasting legacy that will literally echo throughout the rest of time, uh, yeah. I think he sips that. We move on to society, and uh, you know, I mentioned the Russia thing. So, and I don't know if you remember, if you were listening last week, I, I made a little mention, just a little mention about. Um, about Russian uh, Russian oligarchs um, that uh, you know basically have bought up um, a lot of just mad London real estate, and they don't even live in li- live in them. They just they just buy it up just for asset and just for the portfolio, right? And you know UK have allowed this for over ten years, um, so you know it's <laughs> it, it, it's not like uh, and you know, obviously with everything going on at this moment in time. Um, there's some sanctions going. There's some sanctions being banded about um, to Russia after um, basically uh, recognizing two. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna say provinces is probably the wrong word um, as independent. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's it's kick. It's it's about to kick off most likely. Um, but even with that said, um, I wanna I wanna harp on something just more just more here more on the ground right. Um, because you can, you, you guys can always look up um, the foreign affairs on on that. Um, there's plenty of there's plenty of places do, uh, covering that. But I want to cover this because this has pissed me off for ages. I remember watching a documentary on it like ten years ago, and I was just like, "What the fuck are we doing? Like, why why are they allowed to do this? It doesn't make sense, right?" Um, but this is amazing. So this is by Mr. Sam Bright of uh, Byline Times. It's called Styling Facts About London: The Oligarchs Paradise. And let's jump right. In. With the Russian troops massing on the Ukrainian border with Britain, largely unable to influence the course of history through diplomacy, attention has rightfully turned to the home front, and how exactly we have aided Vladimir Putin's regime through domestic policy in recent years. The government is keen to show that it has taken action, 
and has now scrapped their t- the Tier 1 investor visa scheme that has acted as a butler for many uh, for money laundering over the last decade, welcoming rich individuals, often from corrupt states, with minimal due diligence checks. Indeed, Britain's marriage with illicit finance is now long-standing and entrenched, especially in the capital, London, described in the 2020 report by Parliament's Security and Intelligence Committee as Londongrad, a place in which, quote, PR firms, charities, political interests, academia and cultural institutions were all willing beneficiaries of Russian money, unquote. Wealthy Russians have profited from this oligarch's paradise, and Russia is currently in the spotlight given its uh, provocations in Ukraine. But this system is certainly not exclusively enjoyed by Russians. UK and London is is a dumping ground for dodgy money amassed across the globe, often hidden in the luxury property market. As Transparency International has uh, calculated, at least £5 billion worth of property in the UK has been bought with suspicious wealth. One-fifth of its originates from Russia and 84% has been purchased in London. This has occurred through the process of capital flights, domestic instability in Russia causing wealthy individuals to move their money overseas. Buying property in London is attractive because it cleans dirty money, is a stable asset and provides a safe house literally if the individual needs to leave Russia. It has been estimated that Russians hold some £1 trillion in wealth abroad, with capital flight increasing to record levels in 2015, a year after Russia invaded eastern Ukraine and annexed Crimea, with £131 billion leaving the country. Opaque companies, often nestled in tax havens, provide an ideal way to procure properties in the UK beyond the prying eyes of journalists or criminal authorities. Since 2008, £100 billion of London property has been bought by overseas companies based in so-called secrecy jurisdictions. The, quote, favoured vehicle for money launderers, unquote, according to Transparency International. Once again, this, uh, this state of affairs has been facilitated by the UK government, if only due to its consistent lack of action. In 2016, then Prime Minister David Cameron announced that the government would uh, introduce a public beneficial ownership register of overseas companies that own UK land titles, in effect pulling back the curtain to reveal the individuals owning high-value properties. This This measure still hasn't been introduced. And former government minister Lord Edward Fawkes even claims that he was lean- lent on in 2017-18 to drop parliamentary amendments that would have forced the introduction of this public register. This is despite the fact that some 2,189 UK registered companies are involved in Russian laundering uh, and corruption cases involving funds worth £82 billion. Quote, I can only think a deluded uh, desire to protect the city of London has led to all these delays, unquote, Fawkes told The Guardian. It is also unclear how this register would address the buying and selling of off-plan homes, uh, procuring a property before it is built, which is, uh, which is an increasingly popular option among property speculators. Indeed, it is not compulsory for transactions in the pre-completion state to be recorded on the uh, land registry reducing transparency in an already opaque system. Moreover, the reforms introduced by the government so far have largely proven uh, to be ineffective. The Golden Visa Scheme was tightened in 2015 and 2019, leading to a marked drop in the number of people entering the UK from high-corruption-risk countries, but now looks set to be shut down entirely due to persistent money laundering concerns. The Criminal Finances Act of 2017 also introduced unexplained wealth orders, or UWOs, I'm going to call it UOs, because it's funny to say, uh, and, uh, allowing law enforcement to apply for a court order requiring someone to explain their interest in a property and how they attained it. If that person failed to comply, a court would uh, could sus- subsequently decide that the property should be confiscated. Available from January 2018, the use of UWOs has been limited so far, However, uh, having only been obtained in four cases as of June 2021. As a result, quote, even the most conservative uh, estimates indicate illicit financial flows to the UK are a massive problem, says Transparency International. This is because, as the Russia report eliminated, there are whole corporate institutions now committed to easing the flow of rubles into London, or at least resolved to look the other way. Available data shows that suspicious activity reports by professionals uh, working in the property sector, state agents and lawyers, are relatively low. 
As are government fines for firms that fail to report money laundering issues, the commercial incentives currently far outweigh the criminal risk. This has created a climate in which the spoils of organised crime are laundered through London, with as much as 50% of money laundered through Russian schemes or laundromats uh, passing through UK corporate structures. The scale of London's illicit economy has also uh, warped its uh, legitimate interests. London's status as a hub for the international oligarchy has skewed the property market and estimates suggest that anywhere between 20% and 60% of prime London real estate quote-unquote prime, is purchased by overseas buyers, presumably drawn to a place that caters to the interests of the rich, powerful, and private. God, do you remember when I named an episode The Rich and the Powerful just last month? Funny how it all connects, eh? Prime properties are the most expensive in the capital and generate the highest profits for developers and state agents. International wealth has therefore firmly oriented, orient, orientated uh, the market towards luxury developments, consisting of properties that are rather... Uh, bought and left empty, a weekend retreat for global jet setters, or rented out at inflated prices. Academic uh, Anna Minton has uh, estimated, for example, that 25% of residential properties in Knightsbridge and Belgravia are empty most of the time, (laughs) rising to 40% in the West End. In fact, almost 25,000 London homes were left unoccupied in 2020. You see, this is what pisses me off. Like when it comes to stuff like the ho- you know homeless crisis, child poverty, any of this, any of this shit. This is all Mickey Mouse, honestly. Like the the way the, the way the government say like, oh, we can't do this. You can't do you can't do nothing. You can't do nothing. You can't do nothing. Okay, sure. And then you and then you read something like that where twenty five k homes in London were left unoccupied in twenty twenty. You got me fucked up if you think you, there's no solutions to any of our prop any any of any societal issue that goes on in this country. You have no, I do not accept any excuse. Zero. Uh, the highest figure since 2012. An estimated uh, total worth of 11 uh, billion pounds. Even though some 11,000 people sleep rough. There we go. 11,000 people sleep rough on the streets of the capital every year. So it's literally hot. No- Half of the, you could give them half of the properties and still, less than half, and they'll still have dead properties left over. You got me fucked up. It it doesn't make sense. It just, the, the logic is so jarring. I know why they don't do it, but it's just, come on, bro. The, the, the math is there. The math is so easy. Just do it. Just do it. It doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, 11,000 people seat rough on the streets of the capital every year. London properties are the most unaffordable in the country, captured by the super-rich. An investigation by Transparency International found that in 14 landmark London developments, almost 40% of the 2,000 future homes were bought by those from high-corruption risk jurisdictions, and 80% were bought by overseas investors. Indeed, to a large extent, Britain no longer owns the landmarks so closely associated with its capital. Battersea Power Station is now one of London's largest new property developments, uh, converted into more than 4,000 flats, with most of the luxury homes sold off-plan long before they were completed. Mm, that seems fair, doesn't it? The power station was sold to the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund and the Employees Provident Fund of Malaysia for $1.6 billion, uh, in 2019, a form of foreign corporate ownership that reflects many neighbouring developments in the Nine Elms area of southwest London. Yet this trend is also replicated across the capital. The Shard, tallest freestanding structure in the city and the second tallest in the country, is owned by the state of Qatar. <laughs> you, you, just, you just assume, right, that it's British, right? You just assume that. Um, yeah, that's, that's funny. That's hilarious. The Gherkin is owned by a Brazilian conglomerate. And the walkie-talkie is owned by a Hong Kong company best known for its Chinese-styled food sources. City Hall and the, promen- uh, and the promenade surrounding it is entirely owned by Kuwait. <laughs> what? Kuwait? What? what? Okay. It's a, a, I mean, it's just jarring. Anyway, nearly there. I'm just, uh, I just keep stopping because, yeah, it's just, oh, gosh. It's jarring. It's jarring. It's super jarring. Um, you, you know all this, all this big talk about you know sanctioning Russia and like all of this is going on right on our doorstep. Like it's just, it's it's the same with the exit to me. 
Like, you, you, you're beefing Europe, but you ain't got your shit sorted at home. Like, why are you beefing it? Like, who cares? Sort your shit out now. Sort, sort, sort the shit at home first. Like, we give a fuck about what Europe's doing. I don't care. I really don't. I'd rather you, you know, cure. Uh, uh, cure. I'd rather you er- eradicate homelessness and child poverty and people going hungry. Like, how about that? How about food banks? How about, you know, making them non-existent? Instead of all, instead of all this. Anyway. Uh, in a country already ravaged by class divisions, the government and the establishment have opened the floodgates to a new breed of international oligarchs. Oh, joy. People who have systematically harvid, harvested harvested uh, London's architectural assets and turned the city into an organised crime haven. The battle with Russia may be 4,000 miles away, but it has already been undermined by the practices that we have allowed to take place on our own doorstep for years. And exact, that was exactly... An article version of my point from last week. Last week, my mini point from last week. You are all puff, puff chesting about Russia and all this stuff, and you've been allowing this shit for over a freaking decade in your own capital city. You got me fucked up, bro. You, you are fucked. It's a joke. It really is a joke. All of it. The money side of it is a joke. Oh, you don't have the budget for this. Oh, we have to pay more for our homes. Yet, you have all of these oligarchs with their money chilling and you ain't doing nothing about it. Alright, cool. Calm. Sweet. Bless. You got homelessness and yet we have two, we have more than double uh, the homelessness, uh, uh, the empty homes compared to the amount of homeless, homeless people in the city. In the city of London. How about we, how about, uh, how about, I wonder if we, like, uh, how far do you have to, like, uh, you know, extend the radius to, to get 25k in terms of homelessness? Like, do we go, you know, Oxford, do we add East Anglia, do we add, like, uh, Kent? How, how, how many counties can we add until we get to 25k? I just want to know. Fun fact, uh, fun thing. Um, so, yeah. And if you want to get into more, Sam Bright, he has a book called Fortress London, Why We Need to Save the Country from His Capital, and that will be uh, published in April, April of this year. Uh, it might be a cop, um, Sam Bright. If there's a audiobook version, I might get on that, sir, and I might peep. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> it's all laughable. It all makes me laugh um, to to stop myself from crying or smashing something. So that's life. So we get into sport, and uh, this is all about. Well, the Winter Olympics has already cu- has already finished. Um, shout out to uh, the curling men and women, so G- Team GB, um, making what is what has making a bearable um, a highlight in what was a honestly in my mind uh, the worst Olympics from recent memory. I think it was. I think it was shit. I think it was horrible. I think um, everything going on from the ice skating and all that doping stuff um, to the poor, poor state of judging in so many events um, is just—it was just—it it left a worse taste in my mouth. And and I I I I wanted to watch more, admittedly, but right, my cognitive dissonance is waning. It is waning watching the Olympics, man. It is fucking waning, especially the Winter Olympics. Summer is very. I can I can get my cognitive dissonance on when it comes to Summer Olympics because I have I have a lot I can digest. But <sighs> Winter Olympics, you know, having a closing ceremony, you're still talking about unity, bro. There's a war in your doorstep, fam. Like, shut up. Anyway, let's uh, let's get into this. So I wanted to get in something again a little bit different a little adjacent to the olympics so you know i could have talked about how crap the olympics were and see if there was a, a writer that would uh, that agreed with my sentiments um but instead i found something different this is in- i found something interesting i feel um something i i don't think we think about i really don't think we think about this kind of thing um so this is by miss uh, lisa halloran a lecturer in sport and exercise uh, psychology at nottingham trent university um, this is via the conversation. It's called "Why Some Athletes Struggle with Their Mental Health After the Olympics," and uh, you know, we as soon as the Olympics are finished, like you know, they're all they're, most of them are out of your head. You know, what I mean, apart from the apart from the noble stars, right? Um, but 
you know, just there's there's plenty of people that go there, and there's plenty of people that fail, um, and even the people that succeed may perhaps still have the beliefs. But you know, we might get into that. Let's, let's get into the article. After the Russian competing at the Olympics and Paralympics, you'd expect an athlete to feel on top of the world as they return home. But for some athletes, the period after the Olympics and Paralympics can be especially can be an especially challenging time. Though it might not affect everyone, many athletes experience mental health problems after competing in the Games, sometimes known as a post-Olympic dark period. Many athletes have opened up in the past about their mental health struggles they faced while adjusting to life after the Games. For instance, Olympic skier Nick Gepper uh, re- reported feeling extremely depressed and even contemplated killing himself after returning home following his bronze medal win at the 2014 Winter Olympics. And the most decorated Olympian of all time, Michael Phelps, has spoken out about experiencing severe post-Olympic depression. According to research from 2021, around 24% of Olympic and Paralympic athletes reported experiencing high or very high psychological distress after the Games. There are many reasons an athlete might experience a post-Olympic dark period. In some cases, many factors may be involved. For example, failing to live up to performance expectations, not making a final or not achieving a personal best, are reported to affect an athlete's well-being after the Games. Underperforming can be particularly distressing, especially given the Olympics or Paralympics only take place once every four years. This means some athletes will only get one chance in their lifetime to qualify. Other factors linked to post-Olympic dark periods include the euphoria of winning, uh, wa- winning waning, loss of celebrity status, trouble readjusting to life at home, less social support from teammates, injury and lack of routine after competition. Interestingly, even athletes who win a medal or perform better than expected can experience post-Olympic dark periods. Though this might not happen until weeks after the Games, for them, uh, the first several weeks following the Games are filled with media engagements and appearances. But as interest in them subsides, they may begin to experience low mood, isolation and other symptoms of depression. Identity can also play a key role in post-Olympic dark periods. Many athletes feel that they need to have an intense dedication to their sport in order to achieve success, which often starts at a young age. But having their identity solely revolve around being an athlete can also lead to mental health struggles when they face challenges, such as underperforming, getting injured or retiring which can all friend their identity. When being an athlete is, an only, is a person's only focus, it often means that they haven't invested in other interests or considered the possibility of another career. Athletes who felt like they were losing their identity in this way after competing in the Olympics reported experiencing poor mental health, including distress and depression. Even athletes who have a positive outcome during the Games can feel this way. How long can these... How long how long these dark periods last for can vary between athletes, but in particular, those who struggle to let go of poor performance may experience longer-term psychological distress. For example, one study detailed how an athlete held onto the distress of underperforming at the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Olympics until they were nearly due to compete in the 2018 Commonwealth Games. Retiring after the Olympics or Paralympics may also cause long-term mental health problems. One study even showed 40% of former athletes struggled to come to terms with the retirement, uh, their retirement and others clung on to the past even years later. Many athletes want more support after the competition to help them cope during this difficult time. One way of doing this uh, is encouraging them to broaden their identities. Although it sounds counterproductive, encouraging them to be more than just an athlete may help support their mental health throughout their career and even as they face retirement. Anything from getting a new career, spending more time with family and friends, and even going to school can help an athlete do this. Research has also found that having something to do, like going on holiday or going back to school, was linked with better well-being for athletes after competing. Developing a new sense of self outside of sport can also help reduce their feelings of total identity loss. When faced with a difficult period in their athletic career, such as after the Olympics or Paralympics, Research even showed that athletes who reported feeling able to broaden their identity felt less stress and pressure even when faced with retirement. Less than 10% of athletes win medals at Olympic events. After so many years of training and preparation, it's understandable that an athlete might feel down or disappointed after competing, but helping them see beyond their performance or identity as an athlete might help them better cope after the Olympics and Paralympics end. (sighs) <sighs> Sounds a full article. Um, and yeah, I've I, I have a 
a lot of thoughts about it. I feel um, I feel this is something that I've you know heard about firsthand from you know a couple athletes I've spoken to. Um, but you know, even even and I think it there's a lot of factors to it, right? There's plenty of factors to it. Like talking to talking about someone like uh, you know, well. Michael Phelps, right? I think that's a great example. I think it's a really good example. The fact that Michael Phelps, after all the dubbies he got, by the way, swimming should have way less, way less events, by the way, just just to say, um, way too many events in the Olympics, absurd amount of medals. Um, Usain Bolt's is, however many he has, I think it's like nine or ten-ish, um, is way more, is what me holds more weight, in my opinion, than uh, Michael Phelps. But anyway, I, I I try and talk about Michael Phelps and then I end up shitting on Michael Phelps. Oh well, I'm garbage. Um, anyway, yeah, the fact that Michael Phelps had such an ordeal and uh, very publicly as well. I think he had like a DUI or something. I think he like, like had a car crash or something like that. Something car related. I remember. Um, it had to go into like rehab or you know just general therapy. Um, you know it's it's been documented, so you can have a look if you want. But um, it's a uh, Having someone like that get all the dubs that he got and still feel just just down and just downright depressed is is so fascinating to me, and I think that's um I think that can be applied to a lot of things, right? When you dedicate your life to anything and just that one thing, I feel like that's just not how to live in life, you know. But sometimes that's that's need you need to do that if you want to be at the top of your game. If you want to be the best swimmer, if you want to be the best tennis player, if you want to be the best curler, you have to be dedicated. It's sport, you know, you have to be dedicated. You can't just willy-nilly it. But then again, there are many, there are plenty of, plenty of athletes. Um, you know, uh, Dina Rasha-Smith comes to mind for me. Uh, Jasmine Soyz also comes to mind for me. Of how they had, they were doing, you know, they were on the come up and getting degrees. You know, there's plenty, plenty of other athletes that have done that, especially UK wise. Um, you know, especially UK athletes. Like, um, you know, if you do, if you get into UK athletics, you know, there's not, there's not much money in that unless you're an absolute prodigy. Um, you you probably won't get much going pro immediately. Um, you'll probably still have to go. You'll probably, you know, be doing university as well as doing, um, as well as doing, uh, you know, senior or university level um, uh, of athletics. That's most of the case for most people. Um, you know, there's plenty of people that have jobs. I think there was like a, there was an athlete in Team GB, I forget what sport she did, but she's a nurse in my local hospital. Like literally down the road, she's a nurse, she was a nurse in my, she, she is a nurse in my local hospital. Um, and she went, to the Olymp- went to, she went to the Winter Olympics. Now, I don't know how much she, time she dedicates to that. Obviously, she's a nurse in a, in a, in the NHS. That's a lot. That, that that requires a lot of time. I don't know how much time she has, but she's an Olympian, so clearly she does put the time in, and that's highly respectable. Um, I think she was Irish, actually. Yeah, no, no, no I think I think it was from Republic of Ireland, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably, I think I think I think I'm thinking the wrong person, but yeah. Anyway, um, my 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 lack of memory aside, uh, that that, that it, there's just a lot of variables to that, but. It's true. I don't think we think about athletes like that, um, especially after something as momentous as the Olympics. Like even for something like the World Cup, right? You know, footballers always have a fan base in some fashion. You know, you could you could be playing in League One and still have a couple of, you know, a couple of hundred thousand, tens of thousand followers if you if you if you if you if you're popping like that. Like you know, you could easily. Um, you know, there's like. Um, it's like reserve Chelsea players that have like 200k followers. You know what I mean? I'm just like, is <laughs> is footballers are good on that front. And I'm saying, you know, having well, I actually segue very greatly into into the last segment. Um, but for making my make my finishing up my point, um, you know, that's different from someone who you know is like a, does a I don't know, uh, pick a sport, alpine alpine skiing. There you go. You know, that requires a lot. It's alpine skiing. Have you seen that shit? Fuck. You ain't doing that lightly. That's not a light sport at all. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that requires dedication. So, 
um yeah i just i do think i do feel like um as soon as the olympics end especially something like the olympics um a lot of the you know a lot of the a lot of them just have this shining light on them and they're you know for for two weeks they're you know talked about nationally in their own nation and then as soon as it's over done back back to normal back to reality oh there goes gravity it's like it's, it's crazy I can't imagine the, the, the sinking feeling of that, of like coming back, you know, coming back on the British Airways flight, you know, maybe getting like a, maybe having some people at the at the, at the door like going, hey, yeah, welcome back, you know, clapping them up, they sometimes do that, right? And then as soon as you get home, you know what I mean, have a couple of parties maybe, you know what I mean, have like your local club like, you know, gas you up, yada yada. And at some point that shit's going to go back to normal, bro. Like that that that's a honeymoon period. So uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what it is, isn't it? It's it's all it's all a honeymoon period, it's, and that's even if you succeed. I can't imagine the people that get twelfth in fucking uh, freestyle uh, freestyle skiing. Like, what what do you do there? What do you do if you if you're twenty fifth in luge? You know what I mean? Like, what are you doing there? Um, so yeah, that's crazy to think about. But um, you know, salute salute to the athletes, of course, um, to all of them that still put in the work, and um, you know. Even if, um, even if it makes like a memory, um, inside because you know I'm I'm always sport is great for that. Sport is great for memories. I feel um, it's a great barometer as well. Um, I equate several memories in in uh, I equate several years of my life in and encapsulate in uh, encapsulate my memories in those years in in those sports. Um, so for like 2012, for example, obviously London 2012, Chelsea win the Champions League. And then I remember, and then I, those are the two things. Those are my touchstones. And then I go back to 2012, and I remember being 14. I remember failing uh, my GCSEs and stuff like that. I remember all of it. Um, you know, going my last trip outside the country was Turkey, and I was during 2009. And the reason I know that is because I watched Usain Bolt break the world record in Berlin World Championship. Um, so yeah, shout shout, and obviously those are you know the more popular ones, but. I'm sure somebody sees uh, saw Eve Muhead, um, you know, dropping that curl um, at the fi- in the final frame. I think it's I forgot that I forgot the terminology, and you know they may have a memory stuck to that. And um, hopefully the athletes know that um, the efforts are worth it, and you have something that you can be proud of and tell your children about down the line. finish up with uh, media or social media to be specific um, and this is a, um, a, a interesting an interesting article I feel like we should all just you know um, be, re- be 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 uh, be aware of um, you know every time uh, we get into you know this kind of realm um, parasocial relationships basically um, so this is called too close for comfort the pitfalls of parasocial relationships this is by Otega um, Uwagba uh, and yes, just jump home. A few years ago, I had a fan. She had read my writing and listened to my podcast and often uh, often replied warmly to my tweets. Occasionally, she would send me private messages and eventually I started following her back. It was nice. At some point, the volume of communication increased. I began receiving emails and notifications and messages uh, spread to Instagram. Then they grew more frequent, uncomfortably so. She wanted things from me, to work for me, to meet up with me, to know how my weekend had gone to tell me how hers had gone, to tell me about the job she disliked, for me to help her with a project she was launching. My heart began to sink whenever I saw her name appear on my phone, and I started responding less and less in the hope of discouraging her overtures. Then she came to an event I'd organised, the first time we actually met, and to, uh, and to my mortification presented me with a bundle of gifts, which I obviously sent a thank you message for, I'm not a monster. After a period <laughs> where rarely a day would go by without some form of contact, Invitations for coffee, lunch to her house, all politely declined. I texted a friend to ask for advice. The attention had become suffocating, but I also felt a little guilty. She was pleasant, pleasant enough, if somewhat intense. In the end, I chose the coward's way out. I blocked her on social media and felt an immediate sense of relief as I did so. It probably wasn't the kindest way of dealing with the situation, 
but I also reasoned that feeling anxious on my account of a stranger's expectation of friendship wasn't me uh, from me wasn't what I'd signed up for as a writer. After that, I never heard from her again. I'd fallen victim to the consequences of a parasocial relationship. The term describes people forming intense and crucially one-sided attachments to celebrities or public figures. I've seen that word parasocial uh, or used on social media to describe everything from speculation around Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck's surprise reunion to Taylor Swift's uh, fans' uh, feverish discussion of her relationship with ex-boyfriend Jake Gyllenhaal. Unsurprisingly, during the pandemic, uh, these sorts of relationships have assumed heightened importance. For many of us, periodically trapped at home, unable to socialise, our favourite creators and media personalities have stepped into the breach left by our real-life friends. We feel as if we know these people, and indeed, we sort of do. We know how old they were when they had their first kiss, and how long it took them to get over their last breakup, what their bathrooms look like, perhaps, and where we uh, and where they're going on holiday next month. We feel like we're sort of friends, or would be friends, given the opportunity. Now, I'm not actually famous, so the intensity of parasocial fandom, my writing as invited, is generally tolerable and usually even pleasant. But I often consider what it must be like to have a bigger platform and to have thousands or perhaps even millions of people who think of you as a friend. Quote, I think sometimes people with large platforms or audiences have a level of protection, says the actor Ivana Lynch, who rose to fame playing Luna Lovegood in the Harry Potter movies. Uh, and who says uh, the messages uh, she receives from fans are often preface with the assumption that she'll never actually see them. Quote, continue on with quote, when you have a smaller, uh, more intimate audience, I think people do expect a reply, and they feel like you're very close. Uh, unquote. This is the paradox of, a low, of low-level fame, the kind bestowed on popular podcast hosts or minor media personalities, people who have a public profile but are still normal, quote-unquote normal, enough for their fo- uh, followers to assume a degree of kinship. And of course, social media, where dispatches uh, from celebrity sips, uh, sit side by side with updates from our closest friends, actively encourages this sense of proximity and the blurring of lines. Our exposure to the celebrities have no, is no longer limited to the press junkets accom- accompanying a movie release or album drop. Instead, the di- steady drip feed of social media bestows on us uh, constant updates on the min- uh, minutia of their lives. That's a weird way of spelling minutia, by the way. Minutiae. <laughs> My new TA, anyway, uh, having starred in one of the most successful movie franchises of all time, Lynch has a colossal following, 3.8 followers on Instagram alone. And though, she's em- and though she emphasizes the many positive encounters uh, she's had with fans who've reached out to her, the ease of access fostered by social media has also at times invited more uncomfortable re- interactions. Quote, Sometimes it can go a bit too far with people expecting too much of you. Or I find myself busy and not able to reply, and then they'd get angry. With some people even saying, if you don't reply to me, I'm going to do something to myself. One guy, I'll never forget, wrote me novel-length letters on Facebook every day, talking to me as if I was his best friend and telling me about his life. Sometimes he'd be really friendly and sweet, and other days he'd be furious because I never actually replied. Lynch was a teenager at the time. I sort of had the sense, even then, that there was uh, there's something not right here, she adds though she speaks about this particular fan with considerable empathy. Over time, she has changed the way she engages with fans. I'm much more guarded now. I usually don't reply to those messages because there's there's a fragility um, there that can be quite dangerous to entertain when you're somebody who who they revere so much, unquote. If there ever was a media format that lends itself to parasocial fandom, it is the podcast. (laughs) Not mine, <laughs> thank fuck. Uh, the way we consume them, one to one, familiar voice chatting away in our ears, often in the privacy of our own homes, makes podcasts a particularly intimate experience. And for many listeners, that friendship experience is a huge part of their appeal. This is something that Zara McDonald and Michelle Andrews, both 27 and co hosts of one of Australia's most popular podcasts, Shameless, know all too well. They do were close friends before starting the podcast and their weekly analysis of celebrity and pop culture now pulls an impressive 1.6 million downloads a month. Maybe from 20-something women, uh, mainly from 20-something, uh, 20-something women, but is their friendship, uh, it's their friendship as much as their musings on the latest Kardashian scandal that drives the podcast's popularity. Quote, People are invested in the dynamic between us and our bond, Andrews notes. Even now, four years into doing the show, we're still, we still on occasion receive DMs that imply... We're not actually friends, or they were trying to deceive people and don't actually like each other. That we secretly fight behind the scenes and aren't as close as we appear on the show, unquote. 
as well as projections about the nature of Andrew's and McDonald's friendship. Some fr- uh, listeners have also projected the expectation of friendship on the duo. Quote, we've been invited out to social events with listeners who sometimes get a little confused uh, when we don't respond or are, often surpri- or are quite surprised when we don't want to go to dinner with them, <laughs> Andrew tells me. And the consequences of not indulging what fans perceive to be a reciprocal relationship can be disconcerting. The pair describe a flipping of the switch where their most ardent fans have occasionally become hostile when the pair fail to engage with them, sending aggressive DMs and even critical comments about the show on social media. I too have experienced fans whose mood turns sour when they consider uh, consider themselves spurned. One minute sending congratulations on the publication of my book, the next suggesting that I am full of shit. <laughs> quite quite full of shit there. Uh, after Andrews and McDonald uh, published a book in 2019 in which Andrews detailed the sexual assault she experienced at 18, she received hundreds of messages from women who'd uh, suffered similar trauma. Something she was totally unprepared for. Though she repeatedly talk, took to social media to plead with her followers not to send her, not to send personal accounts to their assaults for the sake of her own mental health. She felt considerable pressure to provide the kind of emotional support one would usually expect from an actual friend or a therapist. Quote, I really struggled mentally with the tsunami of sexual assault stories. She remembers, I had some people get incredibly upset with me that they sent me a story and I didn't respond or give them some sort of form of mentorship. There was 1% of women who got very aggrieved or angry when those stories weren't responded to. Uh, unquote. It's clear that the pair have learned the hard way to establish rock-solid boundaries as their, pro- as their profiles have risen. When I ask how, if any of their listeners have ever crossed a line from fan to friend, uh, the answer is an unequivocal no. Uh, quote, we will always be polite and friendly with fans who approach us, but uh, there won't be a one-on-one situation where we're, uh, where we're DMing fan back and forth over weeks, unquote. Yeah, I, I'm not, yeah, that wouldn't, that wouldn't, yeah, that's, that's just, I don't, I, I, I don't do that, to, I, I don't have friends that I do that regularly with, I don't talk to friends regularly that, you know, every single day, you know, maybe one or two, but not all of them, uh, you know, she's I'm talking to a fan like that, no, I'm good, uh, and yeah, for every creator who, for whom parasocial relationships are unintended byproducts of their work, there are many more, influencers, YouTubers, vloggers, who actively cultivate that faux intimacy with their followers, softening them up so they might more uh, might more easily ply their wares, be that waist trainers or makeup brushes. The currency of personal information is something fashion influencer Camille Charrier is well aware of. As one of the industry's most established influencers, Charrier has uh, 1.2 million followers on Instagram. She is professionally honest about the professional incentives to overshare online. Uh, quote, sharing your children your boyfriend inside your home, perhaps about your mental health or other illness struggles, family stuff, all of that performs better on social media. Anything that is very intimate or relatable and that other people can identify with. The things that you use to work, uh, keep it, keeping it impersonal and just showing your outfits like we used to do, don't really work anymore. That's something that anyone with a large social media following uh, will be able to see, which posts uh, generate higher engagement, unquote. By design, social media algorithms reward the type of disclosure that invites parasociality. Uh, in the digital age, many creators' livelihoods depend on that ever-elusive and highly sought-after metric of engagement, prompting them to offer up an all access and access all areas past to their lives. And the politics of personal disclosure are especially fraught for women. Quote, I think there is something about women in media roles uh, where they're expected to share some of them, more of themselves, McDonald's suggests. Uh, though she acknowledges that she and Andrews have freely chosen to share personal stories with their audiences, there's no denying that there's an ex- expectation of women in, in the public eye to maintain a level of accessibility as part of their actual work, engaging in correspondence with their fans and sharing intimate details about their lives. Uh, another quote, No decision exits in a, exists in a vacuum. We're making that decision for a reason, McDonald's adds, and her uh, co-host concurs. At some point along the line, I internalised this belief that if I have a platform, I must expose the traumatic sides of my life to help other people, says Andrews, and for some reason, I don't see that being the case for the men around me, unquote. Yeah, I can see that. I can can see that women are assumed to uh, share more because, yeah, females, right? Of course they share more. You know, it's just, yeah, that's patriarchy for you. Um, that level of intimacy 
can be a difficult path to retreat from uh, once you've embarked on it. Another quote, the more you give, the more people expect from you, Sherryanne notes. If you occasionally engage with some of your followers, others feel affronted when you don't respond to them. If you've demonstrated a willingness to share uh, some personal information publicly, uh, people begin to feel entitled to all of it. Gossip forums such as Notorious Tattle Life uh, are rife with amateur detectives sleuthing often deeply uh, personal information about influences that hard, that's hard to justify as being the, in the public interest, as per the website stated, uh, stated raison, d'etre, raison d'etre, I think that's how you say it. And yet there is fear, <laughs> coming back to, to full circle to the languages and start the episode, fuck's sake, <laughs> FML, raison d'etre, uh, <laughs> and yet there is a fear many uh, uh, among many creators that publicly commenting on discomfort of these expectations would risk appearing ungrateful for, uh, for the audiences that unt- uh, ultimately sustain their livelihoods, and perhaps they're wise to accept these dynamics as merely the cost of doing business. The Faustian pact of creative work where an audience's investment in your personal life often bolsters your professional endeavours. Still, I can't help but feel a little depressed by that attitude. And the normalisation of trading one's boundaries for professional success, not to mention the implications for the type of creative work likely to be produced under those circumstances. Personally, I'm still torn over the right amount to share on social media. Mindful of how easy, easily parasocial fandom can tip into over-familiarity. And of... Uh, of my own tendency towards petulance when it does. These days, I flit between sharing the ins and outs of my ongoing flat uh, renovation with all 37,000 of my Instagram followers and with a more limited close friends-only audience, about 50 people who are, I suspect, bore senses by my prevarication, uh, prevarication? prevarication over nearly identical swatches of white, pen, uh, white paint. Uh, while working on this article, I decided to remove the Hi Friends greeting I reflexively opened in a, uh, with in a newsletter I was drafting, suddenly con- conscious of slipping into the cadence often employed by people with sizable followings when communicating with their audience, or communities as they're often called. For now, I've settled on slightly awkward sounding hello there, though I still sign off my newsletter with an X. It's a stab at taking a leaf out of McDonald's playbook and her assertion that ultimately... It's down to creators who manage the situation themselves. She and Andrews neither check nor respond to their DMs as much as they used to, and in the past year have decided to share less information about their private lives on air. Quote, their responsibility is on us to create our own boundaries, she concludes. You can't expect other people to do that for you. And yeah, I've, I feel like that's a lot of the case um, with especially social media, and obviously this is lean to more towards more um, modern forms of media, but... Even like um, even how just just I mean this links heavily into stand culture for me, and I I hate stand culture to to uh, to to death. I hate it. I hate it. I don't know what you guys are doing with these fan pages. Even fa- guys, even fan pages of of people I like. I'm just like, how do you have time to do this? To dedicate an, a a social media platform sometimes multiple social media platforms on, on on multiple platforms dedicated to another person I, I just don't i just don't feel that i just find that weird to me like dedicate your dedicate to yourself like you know what i mean like dedicate to some bitches <laughs> fuck dedicate to some grass touching you know what i mean like, i just find stand culture weird um but you know even with that said even the minor ones of just like um even hey even people i interview like I even people I interview, you know, I interview them, and you know they don't get the the most personal, as I'm sure they, and I'm sure they would if they if I if you know if if I was like a therapist, right? Um, you know they keep they keep it relatively not surface level, but you know just a level below surface level, not like deep deep neuroses. They're not giving me that, and I don't expect them to, right? I'm not a psychologist for that fact either, and again. I'm not exactly their friend, right? I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a solid acquaintance. I feel for most of them, a solid acquaintance, right? You know what I mean? I've, uh, I've linked up with them, a couple of them, right? And that's cool. Um, I'm not going to their homes or anything for dinner. You know what I mean? So, I, I you know, there's levels. There is levels to it, and I'm, and I think there's plenty of people that are just um not savvy and not socially uh, adept to get the levels you know what i mean um i can hit up anybody i've interviewed and just go like you know how you doing you good um whatever right 
Um, if I want to hit him up for another interview, most of the time they're down, and that's cool. Um, but you know, if I asked um, if I asked one of them, hey, do you want to get some dinner sometime? Like, ee, 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 ee. you know what I mean? Mm, um, you know, nah. Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't fly. It doesn't fly right. You know what I mean? So there is levels to that, and I can understand some people are not that socially adept to see the levels. You know, the lines get blurred. The lines are blurry for them, and they just end up tripping over it. Um, the people that just get aggy over it, um, yeah, that's a that's a that's a, that's an unhinge, uh, right there. That's an unhinged uh trait, and uh, that's a definite red flag. And uh, you should get help on that front. But you know, for the for the for the more um, for the more casual person that's just a really big fan of someone, just like oh, I love your music or I love your writing. You know what I mean? I can I I can I can understand why people you know just get a bit too ahead of themselves. You know, they, they especially especially on social media um, where you see people you know do extraordinary things and things that you really enjoy. You know, because everyone's in their record chamber. You're following your the people you follow. You've decided that it's not like watching. It's not like watching TV back in the day where you know you had four channels and that's all you get. You know, you have choice on social media. You have choice of who to consume, who to follow, and uh, you know you pick it because you you enjoyed that person's whatever you know personality or you just think they're hot whatever. Um, so. Yeah, I can, I can, there's there's plenty of pitfalls, and uh, I feel like the I feel like the the uh, Andrews and McDonald's have a I think that's the most the, the clearest probably the most correct way to go about it. Like you know, if they meet you on the street, then obviously you know I mean cordial, be cordial, be a normal human, right? But um, yeah, and answering the DMs if you're if you're popping like that, I can see why. I can get it. I can get it. I can't relate, by the way. Just can't relate. <laughs> Can't relate to any of it on the on the popularity front. <laughs> Nobody's stalking my pod. Nobody's stalking my DMs. Um, but yeah, I can I can I can see where you need to get to that level. And with that said, I shall leave it there, ladies and gentlemen. From the Fifth End Podcast Network, I've been Charlie Terry, and this has been most good. Injury music has been too much by Vanilla. Uh, you can find uh, you can find, uh, you can thank Joe uh, Preckers for busy user track as well. I can thank I keep I keep saying you can thank. It's weird. Um, you, you can if you want. You can thank Chill Breakers if you want. Um, <laughs> they're doing a, they're, ma- they're making a studio actually. It actually looks pretty sick. I want to see how that goes. Um, and uh, yeah, where was that? Thanks to Chill Breakers for busy use track. You can find both links in the full show notes. Thanks to Nappy Eye for busy use charismatic for the end. You can also find his link in the full show notes. There we go. And with that said, hope you all have a good week. I shall always, always try and do the same. Interview drop in tomorrow after uh, the day after this uh, episode drops and i'm gonna have a long read uh, drop in at some point as well i'm gonna try and get that done sometime during the week and with that said hope you have a good week i should always try and do the same but until the next time take it easy ladies and gentlemen